All right, we ended last time uh, talking a little bit about Abner Jones. He was uh, partnered with Elias Smith in the northeastern part of the United States, and they were the ones responsible for kind of getting the movement among the Baptists up in the northeastern part of the United States to uh, trying to come into alignment with uh, the New Testament church. And, uh, of course, uh, James O'Kelly was a big part of his influence, is a big part of that. So we talked about the things that he was doing among the Methodists, the things that were happening uh, in the Northeast among the uh, Baptist denominations. And now I want us to turn our attention to someone that we're more familiar with as far as the Restoration Movement goes, is Barton W. Stone. Barton W. Stone and Alexander Campbell probably... Uh, have gotten most of the credit for the uh, restoration movement that has gone on uh, uh, in the United States. And uh, of the two, Campbell is a little more familiar to us, and he probably has overshadowed Barton Stone in his work and uh, uh, in popularity and in recognition of the service that he uh, rendered in the cause and of the search for the ancient order. But we're thankful for... Uh, uh, Alexander Campbell and his father Thomas. We're certainly thankful for Barton Stone. So I want us to spend a little more time uh, uh, talking about Barton Stone. We're going to notice that uh, Barton Stone was among some of the greatest men to encourage denominationalism to those in denominationalism to turn to the New Testament, to move toward the Church of the New Testament. And I think he made some invaluable contributions uh, to that movement, and I think they both ought to be honored, both him and Alexander Campbell. But at any rate, on December the 24th, 1772, Martin W. Stone was born to his mother Mary uh, Warren Musgrave Stone, the wife of John Stone. And uh, uh, she... Uh, named him, uh, the middle name Warren, after her own father. And uh, he was born in Maryland. And he lived there for the first seven years of his life. And uh, when he was three years old, his father died, which was uh, kind of common in that time. People lose parents at an early age because obviously the uh, health care wasn't what it is today. And uh, <clears throat> something that we might consider... Maybe not necessarily minor, but certainly not something that would uh, cause one to lose his or her life would do that in those times. Uh, so in 1779, when uh, Barton was seven years old, Miss Stone uh, packed her belongings, loaded up her children, and she moved into the Dan River uh, country on the border of North Carolina. And so... Uh, uh, she left there, and obviously uh, at that time, a, a woman with no husband had limited resources, and so she moved to be able to provide a better home for her family. Of course, what was going on uh, in 1779? The American Revolution was happening. And we've noticed that the American Revolution impacted a lot of the uh, ideas that these restoration fathers had. And so uh, Barton Stone was impressed 
uh, or it was impressed upon him the events of the day, the reasons for the revolution. And he held the same ideals as a young young man growing up, a young boy growing into uh, uh, those early teen years. And uh, he carried with him these same ideals that the uh, uh, revolutionary uh, movers held, freedom, liberty, things like that. And that impacted his spiritual understanding later on in his life as well. In uh, uh, 1781, General Green and Lord Cornwallis, they met in battle not far from Stone's home at Guilford Courthouse. Of course, that was a, a major battle. And, uh, of course, uh, the British, they had a job to do. Their job was to come in and defeat the colonists. And the colonists viewed their job as throwing off the yoke of tyranny and defeating the British and sending them back across the ocean. And so, of course, as he grew up and, and these battles are happening, he could actually hear the battle. He could hear the cannons and the, and the rifles and things of that nature. So this was a, a very real part of his life. Not just Barton Stone, but everybody who lived in that area. But Barton Stone, in my estimation, was a, an extraordinary individual. He had a very sharp mind. And he wanted, uh, in his essence, and we're going to notice that he wasn't always uh, religiously minded, but in his essence, he wanted to do those things which were right. He wanted to uh, be honorable and just. And so I think that uh, uh, helped him a lot. <clears throat> so as a young boy, he was introduced to the uh, tragedies of war, and he learned to hate war. He wanted peace. He didn't want this battle in this struggle, <clears throat> but he also at the same time had the fires of liberty burning within him. They were kindled with him, within him as he began to learn about the things that were going on. And of course we all know from uh, high school history that uh, the uh, those who pushed for the Revolutionary War were very charismatic. They were very fiery and they were... Uh, uh, they could uh, impact an audience. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. I think that they did exactly what they should have done. But they were very good at what they did. They they uh, had certain beliefs and they stuck to those beliefs. And they were good at uh, conveying those ideas and those ideals to people. And so... Uh, <clears throat> and so... Uh, uh, that was some of the things that... Barton Stone would have been uh, uh, subject to, and he would have seen those things. And so this helped to to form him. And uh, years later, this same thing would help him uh, develop his feelings toward denominationalism and creeds and things of that nature. And so uh, we can see the uh, connection, can't we? You have uh, a foreign nation, <clears throat> excuse me, who is uh, forcing upon a people something that they have no say about. Okay, so we can understand that. And at the same time, when we look at the creeds of denominationalism, they impress upon people things that are contrary to the Bible. And people like Barton Stone 
And these other men were able to dig that out. They were able to understand and identify that. And I think that in itself is a wonderful trait in anybody, right? Uh, what do most people in the world do? They were brought up in a particular religion. Do they do much questioning regarding that religion? Not normally, do they? Not normally. Uh, some people do. Not everyone is like that. Barton Stone wasn't like that. But most people probably just kind of go along in the same vein in which they were brought up. And so we see that characteristic in Barton Stone. He questioned uh, the events or the actions, uh, particularly when we're talking about uh, religious settings, uh, up against the Bible. He wanted People say, well, we do it this way for this reason, and we're going to see that he recognized in a hurry. Hey, I don't know if that fits the Bible or not. <clears throat> Any comments, questions? All right. <clears throat> Later on, Stone uh, wrote, let me read to you. Uh, he made a statement saying, From my earliest recollection, I drank deeply into the spirit of liberty and was so warmed by the soul-inspiring drafts that I could uh, not hear the name of British or Tories without feeling a rush of blood through the whole system. And so... That's the, that's the kind of uh, feelings that Barton Stone had. And it really affected him uh, because he did embrace liberty so much. So he got a little older. And Barton Stone, like everyone else, at some point in their lives, they sooner or later faced the thought of religion. And what am I going to do with it? Am I going to ignore it? Am I going to investigate it? <clears throat> Am I simply just going to follow along and and uh, uh, claim a certain belief and really not live in any way uh, adhering to any kind of a belief? Are there people in the world like that? You know, it, it it's funny. And I, I don't know. Funny is not the word. Ironic, I guess. That <clears throat> when someone begins to tell you, and you have a let's say you have a religious uh, conversation, and someone brings up. A, a, a person who may be a Catholic. Do you know they often how they often uh, describe that person in relation to their Catholicism? Whether they're devout or pra- this is a practicing Catholic, right? And I don't know why that sticks with that particular denomination, but that's with everybody, isn't it? Do you have members of the church who we could say? Well, I don't know if they're practicing members. You may see them regularly, right? But in their lifestyles, we don't know if they're practicing or not. I think that could fit to a lot of people. And so uh, <clears throat> when uh, uh, Barton Stone was a young man, he was, he was faced with uh, religion, and he didn't have a, a great interest in religion. That, it wouldn't be for years later that that would awaken in him. And, uh, but, for the time when he was coming up, do we remember what the, uh, uh, one of the main religions of the time was? It was still, cause this is during the Revolutionary War, right? Church of England. And so, for the time, it was very common for parents to do just what Barton Stone's mother had done to him. They sprinkled that baby 
he became a member of the uh, Church of England, the uh, the authorized church or the established church, and uh, he uh, was considered a member there because that had made its way into Maryland. And of course, he was born in Maryland, and in uh, uh, as early as 1692, that church had made its way up into there. So he was sprinkled as an infant. Now, of course, as we talked about earlier. Uh, following the Revolutionary War, the clergy kind of had to move out because they weren't getting paid. The people said, hey, we're not going to spend our taxes supporting the Church of England. We don't want to have anything to do with England. And we can see that in some of the thoughts that, that Barton Stone had, right? He said, I was so enamored with liberty that I couldn't even hear the name British or Tory uh, without him becoming upset. You know, and so they didn't want to have anything to do with uh, anything English, right? We don't want your religion. We certainly don't want your tyranny. And so, uh, but as ironic as it is, Barton W. Stone is a member of the Church of England because his mother had him sprinkled as an infant. And of course, uh, we talked about as the uh, clergy moved out, it created this vacuum and kind of sucked in these other denominations. And we talked about the Baptist preachers uh, such as Samuel Harris, Dutton Lane, uh, men like that. They lived about 30 miles from uh, from where Barton Stone lived. And it was from the Baptists that Barton Stone first heard about immersion. Of course, he was sprinkled. That's all he knew, right? His mother had talked about that. He was well aware he was sprinkled as a child. I'm sure that... He followed along in those beliefs, or at least thought that was fine, you know, whether he had much interest in it or not. But from the Baptist, <clears throat> he learned about this idea of immersion. And, uh, uh, but, as with a whole lot of people, he would begin to listen to their accounts of conversion. And of course, when you listen to a denominational account of conversion, it's not anything like what we read about in the New Testament. Of course, Barton Stone, I'm, I'm sure, wasn't reading the New Testament, but he couldn't connect to that. He couldn't quite understand what they were talking about. Have you ever heard someone explain to you how they became saved? I heard a fella tell me one time, he was a younger man, he said, I was driving down the the road, I was drinking beer, and he said, I don't know what happened, I just turned, I, I, I pulled over, I got out, got down on my hands and my knees, and I prayed to God, and I poured out that beer, and at that point I was saved. And that's kind of a, a tame version of what some of the things that happened. We're going to notice during a lot of the uh, uh, revival moments during the spiritual enlightenment in this country, they would do a whole lot more than just simply pray. There's a lot going on, a lot of action going on, uh, a lot of movements. Uh, you know, some would dance, some would uh, get down on their hands and knees, and they'd bark like a dog, and they'd just do different things, and uh, uh, all in the name of religion. And that's really sad when we read about that, isn't it? That people would allow themselves to get so caught up in a moment. Uh, what do we call that? That's emotionalism, isn't it? Emotionalism. Is uh, Christianity, is there emotion tied to Christianity? Absolutely. If, if you're not, if you 
If you don't have emotion when we read about the things that happened to the Christ or the apostles, you know, I may, maybe something's missing. Maybe something's missing. But we don't have emotionalism, right? Well, so he's learning that from the Baptists. Well, the Methodists also came into the area, and uh, Stone wrote that he liked them because of their piety and their sincerity. And I don't doubt that at all. I don't doubt that at all, and I think we need to understand this isn't a class about denominationalism, but it's a class about the restoration movement coming out of denominationalism. So we're going to talk a little bit about these organizations, but we never need to demean them or... Uh, mistreat them in any way. I think a lot of people look at members of a particular denomination or all denominations, and sometimes they they act as if they know that they're wrong and and they could do better, but they choose to do wrong. I don't think that's the case at all. I think Bart Stone recognized that in, uh, in in these Methodists that he interacted with. He liked them for their sincerity. He liked them for their piety. They were good folks. They were good folks. They were morally upstanding. They wanted to please God, but they were going about it all in the wrong way. But what he discovered was that uh, both the Episcopalians who had come into that area and the Baptists fought against the Methodists because of uh, the Methodists teaching this idea of works, working your way into heaven, okay? Now remember, where did the where where did this Methodism come from? Came from the Church of England, right? John Wesley was uh, a member of the Church of England. Never left the Church of England. Never was uh, was uh, uh, buried in his robes. Okay, and so he sent these missionaries to the nation, or over to to our nation, uh, to America. And we talked about Asbury and some of those men. And, and so from that, uh, James O. Kelly, he came out of, out of the Methodism, Methodistism that, uh, Asbury and, and some of those men were pushing. And he started that, uh, what, what was it? The, uh, was it the Episcopalian Methodist or, well, that's not it. Anyway, we talked about it last week. Let's go back and look at our notes here in a day or two, and, and get that name down exactly. But it was still a Methodist denomination. And so what was uh, the uh, the Church of England saying? Well, they were saying some of the very same things the Catholic Church was saying. Remember, the Church of England came about because they were trying to get away from the Catholic Church. You work your way into heaven, right? You can. The, the more works you do, the more pleasing you are to God. Now, does God expect us to do works? We better be doing them. Godly works. Our, our plan, uh, God's plan of salvation is full of godly works. The life of a Christian is full of godly works, but we're not working our way into heaven. We're not owed anything, right? When we look in Romans 6, 23, we understand that the wages of sin is death, but the, but eternal life is, life is a gift from God, right? But it's connected with connections. It's connected to doing things that that God expects us to do to be pleasing to Him. So, Martin Stone seeing this battle going back and forth. The Baptists and the Episcopalians, they're in an uproar. They're fighting against the, the Methodists because the Methodists say you got to do works. 
Well, the, the Baptists and the Episcopalians, because of John Calvin, who was a part of that uh, Reformation movement, he said, well, no. You just, all you got to do is believe there's no works involved whatsoever. And so he's seeing this problem. Now, how does that help us when uh, <clears throat> we're noticing uh, organizations around us and how they're fighting and they're, they're fussing about doctrines and, and they both claim to be Christians, but they're in this war over particular doctrines. Is that, is that in some way maybe helpful to the person who's witnessing that? I think that the person who's witnessing that, it helps them in the sense that they're saying, okay, they're not on the same page, so how do we get on the same page? How can we decide who's right and who's wrong? They both say they're following God. What's the only book God's ever given to us? It's the Bible, right? So where do we go to find the answers? you got to go to the Bible. We're going to see that in Barton Stone. He decided that's what he wanted to do later in life. And so, uh, but also, one other thing that happens, and this happens a lot, you either it will either assist you in searching for the truth, or what can it do when you see a bunch of religious arguing going on? I'm done with it. I don't. If that's what it means being a Christian, I don't want to be a part of it. That's what Barton Stone did. That's what Barton Stone did. And so, uh, in the late 1700s, uh, where Barton Stone had, uh, uh, had ideas of going to the state of Virginia, of course, in the late 1700s, it was known as the, the birthplace of presidents, right? You had Washington and you had, uh, Jefferson and, and you had all these people who, these uh, uh, revolutionary figures coming out of the state of Virginia. And so uh, uh, also not far from where uh, Barton Stone grew up and where he lived in North Carolina, not far from the border, a man by the name of Patrick Henry who helped bring about the, uh, the War of Independence uh, was pretty close to there. And so what happened to Barton Stone, he got interested in this idea of politics, and he wanted to be a statesman, okay? That interested him a lot, and so uh, in 1790, he was 18 years old, and his father, who had died when he was three, they settled his estate, and what he did is he got in touch with his brothers, I think he had two younger brothers, and he told them, he said, you can have all the estate, I won't make any claim to it, if you if you'll pay my way to college, and so he took his inheritance and he used it wisely and he invested it in an education. Thankfully for us, that's what he did because it didn't turn out exactly like he thought it would do, like it would be. But anyway, uh, about thirty miles from Barton Stone's home in North Carolina, there was a college called the David Caldwell College where 23 years earlier this man had built a log cabin with a top floor and a bottom floor and he turned it into a university and he trained people school was on the bottom floor he lived on the top floor and so there was uh, David Caldwell was an amazing individual okay 
He was extremely intelligent. He was a doctor, a physician. He was an educator. He was a statesman. He was born in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He graduated from Princeton University in New Jersey, and he was also a Presbyterian minister. Now, we're going to notice that a lot of these Restoration fathers came out of the Presbyterian denomination. Okay? And so, in 1790, that college had about 50 students, and that was an amazing number of students for that time. And when Barton Stone... Arrived there on February the 1st. Caldwell was about 65 years old. But when he got to the college, he noticed that there was a dominating uh, <clears throat> interest in the college, and that was of religion. And it bothered him. He didn't think that's what it ought to be. You know, he said, here, I've come to college to learn some things. I want to get an education. All they want to talk about is religious things. Well, who was Caldwell? He was a doctor, he was an educator, he was a Princeton graduate, but he was a Presbyterian preacher. And so what his interest really laid in was religion. He wanted to talk about religion. He wanted to teach the Bible. He wanted people to learn and appreciate the uh, the things that God had left for them. And so uh, uh, he uh, he talked a lot about that. Now... Uh, there was a man that came along who was also a Presbyterian preacher at that time, and his name was James McGreedy. And he was very popular for his day, and he spoke at the college. And when he spoke at the college, remember they had about 50 or 55 students, about 30 of those students, quote, got religion. And so uh, they began to adhere to this Presbyterian faith. And they joined that church. Now, uh, Barton Stone wasn't interested, okay? He didn't want to have anything to do with religion. He had become disgusted between uh, when he noticed the Methodists fighting against the Episcopalians and the Baptists. And so he decided he's out of there. He said, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go to Northampton, Virginia, uh, uh, Northampton, with a D, Virginia. And uh, he was going to go up there and try to go to school. Now, I don't know if this is providential or not. I tend to look back over things like this and think maybe it was because Barton W. Stone made a huge impact for the Lord's church. The very night he got ready to go, it came this terrible storm. He wasn't able to leave. So his roommate invites him to go listen to McGreedy preach. And so, kind of against his his uh, better ideas, he decided that he would go listen to this man preach. And he did that. And so, uh, Stone became very impressed with this man. And he heard some things that maybe he hadn't heard before. And so he began to struggle with this idea of religion. And for a whole year he struggled concerning his uh, spiritual condition. And uh, he began to have a great intense interest in his own soul. I think that's something very important that people need to understand. When we consider the church, the church has a great love 
for other people's souls, right? That's, that's the whole point. The main work of the church is to spread the gospel. But who do we have to have, whose soul do we have to have a concern for first and foremost? Our own souls, right? And so as Barton Stone began to listen to this Presbyterian preacher, he became conflicted within him. He understood what was going on in his life. And I don't think he was anywhere near a terrible person. He just wasn't interested in God. And I think that began to conflict him. And he was concerned with his own soul. Who can get us to heaven? I'm the only one who can get me to heaven. Period. Now, someone can teach me. Someone can encourage me. But I have to take the steps to be responsible for my own soul. And I think that is something amazing that we see in Barton W. Stone. And so, uh, but, don't forget about his mother. Okay? His mother was very worried about Barton Stone, worried about his direction. She continually cried and wept and begged him to come home, so he made the 30-mile trek back uh, to his home place, and he joined the Methodist Church. Now, remember... They impressed him, right? Their piety, their sincerity. So he got back home in North Carolina, and he joined the Methodist Church. And uh, But he still had this influence of McGrady. And so in 1791, on a visit, he'd gone back into North Carolina uh, to uh, William Hodge, or went to hear William Hodge from North Carolina, and upon hearing him, he decided he was going to join the Presbyterian Church. Now, brother, that's kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? You're just kind of hopping from one one place to the other. Someone says something, it kind of sparks your interest. Okay, you're interested in them. He, You know, the Methodists uh, uh, impressed him. And then he's hearing McGreedy preach, and he's impressed with McGreedy. He goes and hears this other fellow preach, and so he says, okay, well, I'm going to be a Presbyterian now. And so he goes and he joins the Presbyterian church. And so that it was at that time that things changed for Barton W. Stone. Now remember, he's still in school, and all of his classmates nearly are all preachers. Okay, so he has that influence. Uh, Caldwell's a preacher. He has that influence. And so he decides he's going to follow in the same footsteps as his classmates. And so he wanted to be a Presbyterian preacher. But, as with most denominations, what has to happen before you can be a preacher? <coughs> you got to go to seminary. You got to take some tests. You got to, you know, and I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. I went to a preaching school, I took a lot of tests. But do you have to do that to be a preacher? Some of the best preachers I've ever known were self-taught. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Brother J.C. Watkins was a self-taught preacher. Now, he, he uh, retired out of the Air Force. And so, uh, uh, but that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to become a Presbyterian preacher. And to be able to do that, uh, he had to test in front of the Orange, this is the area in North Carolina, Presbytery. So he was given a, a, a sermon topic, okay? Uh, he had to, uh, 
he was given a, a text of Scripture. And in addition to this text of Scripture that he had to put a sermon together on, he had to write a thesis, and his topic was the Trinity. Okay? Of course, we, know, we understand what the Trinity is. Uh, that word's not used in the, in the New Testament, but it, it's, it's a valid word. It means three, right? And it is concerning uh, or has to do with the Godhead, the Godhood. And it is made up of three persons that make the one God, and that was his topic. So he had to write on the Trinity. He didn't know anything about the Trinity. He said, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, you know, uh, so what he began to do was he began to look at the work of a man by the name of Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts wrote on the glories of Christ. And within that book, the glories of Christ, obviously he wrote about the three persons of the Godhood. And so that is what Barton Stone began to study and to pay attention to and delve into this book called The Glories of Christ. Now, Isaac Watts was uh, an English Christian, quote, Christian minister, okay? And uh, he was part of the congregational denomination. Now, the Congregationalists, they are, they identify with the Puritans, both uh, theologically and politically. And the Puritans were some of the first ones that left England. You remember, we go back to uh, fourth grade history, I guess, or third grade history or something, and uh, we learned about the Puritans coming over, and they were coming, leaving England and other places in Europe because they wanted to have religious freedom. And this is... Uh, this man had a background in that. But he was also a hymn writer, a theologian. He was a logician. He was an extremely smart man. And uh, born in 1674 and he died in uh, 1748. At any rate, by studying this man's material, he was able to pass his test. He preached his sermon. He wrote his thesis. And so he passed the test and he was going to be able to be a Presbyterian minister. But they don't give you your license when they test you. You have to come back the next time the, the Presbytery convenes, and that was going to be six months later. At any rate, he could preach, but he wasn't licensed at that time. But what this gave him was an opportunity to continue to study and to understand what the Presbyterian creed and doctrine was. And as he did that, he saw some things that he just couldn't agree with. Any comments? Questions? Brother Joe. The Presbyterians, I believe, and I'd have to go back and look, I believe they had their roots in England, or at least I know that uh, the Campbells were... Uh, Presbyterian. They were, they, of course, they were other things as well. But ultimately, when they started their restoration movement, they came out of the Presbyterian church. Yeah, I'm sure. And, and the Campbells were Scottish, is what they were. And so, uh, <clears throat> but anyway, as far as the, the, I can find out. I can find out. There's a date of the beginning of that denomination. And I'll look into that, see if I can determine. 
Uh, I'm sure it was, it's part, it was part of that Protestant protesting movement, you know, of, uh, that most of these denominations came from. And so whether it was a direct offshoot of the Church of England, I, I don't know about that. But I'll find out a little more about uh, the uh, Presbyterian Church. Let me write myself a note here. And we'll, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll have that information uh, next Sunday. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was emotion, just not emotionalism. You know, that's what it was. It was, uh, you know, how can you listen to Peter's sermon about the things that happened to the Christ and some of those people who were in the audience played a part in that and not be pricked in your heart, not not feel emotion, right? But it just wasn't emotionalism. They weren't, uh, you know, people can uh, rile themselves up to the point where, uh, you know, they they behave in really odd, strange ways, you know. They can get so uh, emotional, I don't know a better way to put it, where they're just not behaving like they would normally behave. But that's, uh, that's some of the things that, that we're going to notice. Even at the, uh, even at the, we're going to get over to the great revival at Cane Ridge up in Kentucky when, when uh, uh, the sermons were preached to finally unite this cause into the church of Christ. There's some things like that was going on there as well, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you'll do you'll do things because you, you've convinced yourself of you know you can convince yourself of a whole lot of things, can't you? That's not true. And uh, uh, you know, you can convince yourself that God has spoken to you directly, or you know, any number of things. Good comments. Any, any other comments, brother Joe? Happiness is definitely an emotion. We have emotion. We just don't have emotionalism. Yeah, God has a... I mean, who 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 has been more emotional or who has demonstrated their emotion more than Christ did? You know, he, he looked upon people and had compassion and he wept for them. He looked over uh, uh, Jerusalem and wept for Jerusalem. You know, uh, tears of sadness for them. He wept for himself in the garden, didn't he? Tears of sadness for himself because he knew he was about to suffer physically in a way no one had ever suffered. <clears throat> and of course, uh, you know, we can go back to John 11 when uh, Lazarus came out of the tomb. Prior to that, Jesus wept. You know, that's the verse everybody wants to remember, memorize, right? <clears throat> but, uh, you know, he wept because of the emotion he felt for those who were sad. I believe is why he went. He knew Lazarus was going to come back. But the other people, not everybody there understood that. Right? Lazarus' sister said, you know, Lord, if you'd have been here, we know he would have, he would have lived. And so she was heartbroken. But he had times of happiness, you know, and, and so, uh, we have emotion. We have emotion. And I think sometimes though, to guard against 
not doing things decently and in order, I think sometimes we hinder our emotion a little bit and we become a little too stoic. So we have to kind of guard guard against that as well, don't we? You want to be in the middle. You don't want to be to the left or to the right. So uh, uh, I think that's something to consider. Good comments. Anything else? All right, we'll pick up here next time and we'll find out what else Barton W. Stone has in store.